Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. SDG Talkers, welcome back. Today, you're going to hear from Yona McCullough. Yona is a doer. He's on the ground, in the dirt, working with farmers, just getting after it. Yona is the co-founder of SoilWatch, which gives satellite and AI tools to project developers and land users to model and monitor environmental change, helping them to develop nature-based solutions that address societal challenges through the restorations of ecosystems. This ultimately helps create a legitimate carbon market that incentivizes good behavior, not just checking a box of carbon offsets, but truly verifying the impact. Yona is going to elaborate more on why we don't really value nature and what the different players from businesses, governments, and you can do to get involved to not be part of the problem, but instead to be part of the solution. Hope you enjoy. Yona, why do humans not value nature the way that we should? It's a quite good question. I think it's a good way to start to kind of understand it or frame it. If you think of, there's actually two things, there's value and then there's price. So price is actually that how that value is reflected in, in our economic system. I think when it comes to whether us humans, we value nature or not, there's probably quite big differences in between individuals and societies and cultures. I used to think that I, I've always been a, a fan of nature. I spent a lot of time there since a kid. And I always had a feeling that humanity is almost like committing a suicide by destroying ecosystems. And actually, to me, one was a very revealing thing. I was um, managing a project. I was building a supply chain for organic avocados from Tanzania to Europe. And we did an organic certificate. And when we studied the market and we worked with the buyers, we realized there was way more demand for organic products than supply. And that was the same thing for a lot of different products. So we actually saw that a lot of increasingly people value nature, but it's just that the value of the nature is it's not being priced our economic systems. So we could also ask that why does the, the way we organize the economy and our economic system, why is, is the value of, of the nature not priced uh, there? And, and then, you know, you go down, it's a bit of a longer a dive on the economic theory and so on. But uh, I think that's been increasingly actually corrected at the moment. So there at the end, that was interesting of maybe it's the way that economic structures are actually created, the way that our the markets buy and sell and the way that supply and demand is created. It's not that we don't value it, it's just that the market that is undervaluing it for some reason. So is that through because of subsidies or taxes or sort of freebies that that governments have provided to incentivize bad practices that aren't sustainable or kind of how has that come to be? It's all of that. And I would say a market itself, it's an evolving uh, social structure as well. In economic theory, you have something we call the principle of Pareto Optima. So the idea is that in, in the market society, when I'm producing, a, I can increase my own well-being and the well-being of other people. And meanwhile, so I produce a product and then I sell it to the market. So while I'm increasing my own well-being, I'm not decreasing the well-being, the welfare of the others. That's when you have a, a Pareto Optimal situation. But what's happening with nature that we, a lot of the resources that we consume to produce products, cost or the price of that is not being reflected on the product. So that basically allows individuals to exploit 
uh, nature at the cost of everybody else. And I think that's something, I mean, depending how you look at the markets, but it's still a pretty much an evolving system. So I just feel like the real cost of the real resources that be consumed to produce a product or a service, they just not being calculated there. And then you have subsidizing that, that as well. But I think that's the principal problem there. So you've got a little bit of a background and understanding of these carbon markets and sort of nature-based solutions. Give me some context on Yona and some of the work that, that has led you to your understanding of this, these markets. And then give me a little high-level overview of your company, Soil Watch. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for asking. So to me, why I'm so excited about the carbon markets, it's bringing together two of my passions. As I mentioned, since kid, I, you know, we used to run in the, spend all our uh, days and free time in the, in, the, in the forest running there. I grew up in Finland with a lot of forests there, a lot, a lot of lakes. And since then, I've been on my free time and on gap years, doing a lot of voluntary work in organic farms, different kind of conservation ranches and national parks and so on. But I ended up studying uh, a business, economics and finance, politics. That was my other, I just had a feeling, yeah, especially uh, finance, business and, and economics was my other passion. And uh, for some reason, I, even though environment was another passion for a long time, I couldn't see where those two meet. Then I've been, most of my professional life I spent in Africa, working both in private sector and aid and development. And I increasingly started to see that one of the biggest contributing causes for human disasters, uh, food insecurity, conflict, forest displacement, was uh, a degrading environment. And that kind of then brought me to, we started to discover that there was, there were these market-based mechanisms to basically conserve and restore environment. So that kind of brought me to the carbon carbon market. And the, with the soil robots, we started with a, a team with quite similar background, most of them also be working in Sub-Saharan Africa, however, with different disciplines. So from others uh, more familiar with the remote sensing, uh, modeling, and, and some with the monitoring and evaluations and emergency coordination. So what we thought as the market for carbon offsets increase, we thought that this is a huge opportunity for Africa because carbon dioxide on the atmosphere is when it's too much, it's a liability. But when you have carbon on your ecosystems, on your soils, forests, uh, rangelands, that's an asset. And we thought, starting to work, uh, helping with technology, helping to scale nature-based solutions. So basically carbon projects with restore landscape and address societal pro uh, problems, that that is a massive opportunity for Africa. So with the whole concept of the degrading environment and in creating market mechanisms to conserve and restore the environment, Give me some context on like what is an example of restoring the environment. And one thing that I have heard a lot in the mainstream news about carbon offsets is actually that while they are great in theory, it has created some bad practices for some corporations because the mindset is, hey, I can continue to go on with the status quo and and have different levels of impact in the environment. But if I just keep making money, I can keep offsetting it. So I guess two kind of part question there in that you know, what are some examples of a market-based mechanism and, and solution that is happening that's being done on the ground? And, and how do you counteract people looking at this as like the, the easy way out to offset their bad activities? I can maybe start answering by uh, answering the latter question first and then the first one. So yeah, I mean, that criticism is, is definitely a, a fair and we hear it a lot. And the carbon market itself is 
still definitely evolving. There's only very few regulatory carbon markets. One is the EU ETS, and New Zealand and Australia have also pretty quite good regulatory carbon market. And then you you have increasingly the voluntary carbon market. Now, if you go back, if you go back to the the first question about why are we not pricing nature? Why corporations are allowed to exploit nature as much as they want without really having to pay for that? So one way to make to put a real price of wasting and consuming nature's assets and resources is to start pricing carbon. Because every single time we go and we cut down forests or we pollute ocean, we are actually releasing a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. So whether the companies would just go directly and offset without trying to cut their emissions, I think that depends a lot of the price of the offset. If the price is high enough, it probably makes more economic sense for most companies to first go and try to cut their emissions as much as they can. Typically, at the moment, in a voluntary carbon market, their strategy is something... So you have a lot of big companies who are declaring net zero targets. Others are net zero already. So the journey there typically is that, let's say, you reduce your emissions first, let's say 70%, but in very few supply chains, you can fully reduce all carbon emissions. Even us as humans, we breathe all the time. So how do you make that supply chain a net zero? Then the last 20, 30% you have to offset. Now, there are different ways to offset it. There used to be that you basically pay somebody else also to put out more renewable energy instead of burning fossil fuels. It's not so, depending on the regulation, it's not so much accepted anymore as an offset because the, the price of the uh, renewables are going down. So now we have, we have different other mechanisms. There are, for instance, carbon removals and nature-based carbon offsets. And there, basically, what do you do? You avoid land degradation, and that's carbon offsetting. And then sometimes you, you restore landscape the way you actually remove carbon back. There are a lot of different, acti- let's say, activity types or project types. It can be just basically financing a national park in Africa. You know, maybe there's an encroachment of the national park, and then you put a fund there, and then you find even the local communities so that they don't go and, and cut down the trees. So that can be one thing. Another thing, what they do, a typical thing here in Africa is that when people don't have electricity, they go and they cut down trees for charcoal. So maybe you can put some kind of full efficient stoves or even uh, solar panels there. And they need to calculate that with this investment, how much deforestation uh, you avoid. Those are a few things. Then again, 70% of Africa's agricultural landscape or agricultural land is, is degraded. So there are programs coming there as well where you basically have uh, sustainable or maybe uh, regenerative agriculture practices which then stop plant erosion, actually start building soil organic matter. So, and, and then we also, what we work quite a bit is, is we work with pastoralists. So uh, 50% of the world's surface is something what you can call rangelands. So it's being grazed either by domestic animals or, or wild animals. And, uh, and it's quickly degrading as well. Uh, because of saline uh, uh, or, or grazing practices. So that's another area where we work. We're kind of working with pastoralist groups to stop this uh, land degradation and even reversing it. But I think the core thing, the core idea there is that we start seeing uh, farmers, pastoralists, indigenous groups, we start seeing them not just food producers, but also kind of uh, stewards of their ecosystems. And we pay for them for uh, conserving the, the environment and, and even restoring it. And that's kind of the the core idea in the nature-based solutions and in the carbon market. And that sounds great and all, but I I look at a lot of companies and the tone is changing. You're you're seeing younger generations that are demanding more out of 
companies that they purchase from. Seeing it within consumer product goods, you're seeing it in insurance companies, you're seeing it within even finance companies where the consumer is becoming more aware and, and demanding a higher level of expectation. Um, but it still doesn't, it seems like a lot of companies who, who really are the driver of a lot of these, you know, the good and the bad of the world are reluctant to do anything unless they are 100% forced to. And so there's this dynamic of, is it mandatory? Is it voluntary? Is it voluntary because it's just, we want to look good and have this be a positive corporate social responsibility initiative that we share on our LinkedIn page that helps us drive. It's more of a marketing play or it's, this is actually mandatory because one, the government's enforcing it. Two, we can also look at it as a potential cost saver. We can look at it as something that's going to preserve the long-term well-being of our resources that we're their raw resources that we're turning into finished resources. Like it seems like there's a little bit of a conundrum there, but talk me through sort of the the mandatory nature and voluntary and, and are there places where it's mandatory and or there is it all kind of voluntary? How, how does that what's the story there? Yeah, so it obviously started as a mandatory and it's been quite slow. A lot of economists have been promoting it for years and it's been quite slow and a lot of work. So as I mentioned, European Union and, and the New Zealand and Australia have kind of the most advanced regulatory carbon markets. But even there, it doesn't apply to every company. It's only certain industries or if you, uh, you know, your carbon emissions go above certain thresholds. So it's not at all ready yet, the, the mandatory market. Now, the voluntary market, the way I look at it, it is kind of like a spare head. If you look at the carbon pricing, from the perspective of companies, there was a study of from uh, I think it was a Harvard Business Review. They estimated that if we actually start taking in account on company accounts the the external cost of carbon emissions, that would be about eight percent of the world's GDP. And where does that liability lie? It lies in the balance sheets and income statements of the big companies. So I think part of the voluntary carbon market is the the goodwill that the companies will get as, as a net zero. So they, they think that drives, makes them more competitive. So uh, buyers are going to buy their products and, and that's certainly there. But I think partly why they're going voluntarily net zero is that they're looking at the, the development of the, of the basically regulation and the global market in maybe 10 to 15 years timescale. And let's say if you have a huge carbon liability on your balance sheet, if you have to do the transition one day, the regulation comes and you have to do it overnight, you, wait, you may go, uh, you will probably go bankrupt. So they're kind of betting on that the regulatory market will come as well. And they just start to prepare for it. And it's also risk management from, so they get the goodwill and it's a risk management from their part. But I, I agree hundred percent. It will have to be uh, regulatory as well. Our company is right now accounting for carbon liability on their balance sheets. I mean, how is that factored in into a, from an accounting perspective at the moment? So again, it depends. So maybe, for instance, like maybe big energy companies in Europe, they are, and in, in Australia and in, in New Zealand, because they have to, because they're already on the, it's on the regulation. I think they increasingly are. There's even, there's a lot of, I see this is something. So when we talk about carbon pricing, we have to remember one thing. It's not just an additional cost for companies. It's a product. It is people who, who emit carbon, have to pay, people who draw down carbon get paid. So it's a commodity, it's a product. So I think this is a very good way also to frame a climate action, that it's not just something that we're giving up on the things. We are creating new industries, new kind of jobs. 
and maybe way more meaningful jobs than some others what we had in the past. So anyway, going back into carbon accounting, there's a lot of at the moment in the in the UK there's a, there's a task force working on that. And so it's called carbon accounting basically on, on different standards. So that again is it's quickly uh, emerging, evolving area, and I think increasingly they are doing it. But there's still a lot of discussion of like how do you actually do it and. And there's obviously a lot of greenwashing as well, that's for sure. But uh, I'm quite confident it's coming. And I think it's a really good thing. It, it, as I mentioned, it's not just giving up things. It's really a lot of room for innovation, for technology, for new industries to grow. I mean, I live in a world where I'm always facing people with their arms crossed and sort of just like a stern stance saying, this is the way we've always done it. We're not changing. And my mindset's always like, always you mean like since the the cavemen back uh, you know thousands of years ago like it's not always like that and the way that we've consumed recently is uh, has continued to create nice luxuries but also continues to maybe create unsustainable practices and you see where the population is at today 7.3 ish billion people projected the year on 9 billion 2050 I sometimes, the thing that keeps me up at night is sometimes thinking about that, that imbalance and the whole Malthusian catastrophe. Is there a finite amount of resources to supply the human population on this world? I don't know. Do you, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And I mean, we argue a lot because for a long time, the whole climate action and, and the environmental movement, people would think that, you know, it's just for some uh, few radicals and hippies, but but we really, we work in Sahara where a climate change is creating a lot of conflict and displacement. There's going to be tens of millions of people who have to leave their home if we don't help them to adapt, if we don't adapt to the climate change and, and mitigate it. Another thing is, for instance, now there's a lot of, in Europe, we have a war basically, uh, which has been funded by fossil fuels. And people are complaining that the, uh, the prices are going up. But think about it. If you have renewable energy, you're not depending on, at the moment, we're funding, you know, dictatorial regimes and we have this huge supply chain risk because we have to bring these fossil fuels in. But if you have alternative power sources, you know, then you don't have these liabilities, you don't have this risk. Then you're most likely going to have those located on your own, your own country. So we really think it's, it's, we should see these as some kind of like more integrated strategies on that have environment and climate in everywhere, even in defense, security, food security. I think we're going to see this increasingly as well as the climate goes up, that uh, climate change or the temperatures go up, that it's something we have to consider in every everyday season. Yeah. And then I've heard a lot too about the idea that I'm very optimistic and I believe in the human race. And I believe in the fact that it, we can continue to strive towards the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. But there are times when I get a little bit pessimistic when just, just thinking about the full scope and kind of like where we're heading in, in regards to just like the imbalance of, of resources and opportunities. But, but nonetheless, I, I think it's, it's optim it's, it's hopeful hearing from people like you. It's, it's exciting to think about that there are ways forward in terms of how we can not only remove carbon from the atmosphere, but also find ways to live within the adaption to adapt to the future world. Like the, the world is changing and it's some of that's human to do, some of it's natural. But I think what I, I like to, I want to dive into a little bit more is how we can continue to tap into our ancestral practices and our indigenous knowledge. In particular, and it may be tied into the nature-based solutions where one of my favorite practices that I've learned from recently is 
as a concept of biomimicry and just looking at nature and copying it and using it as a source of innovation to get really granular about how you can go about creating a carbon credit. You know, you, we may, some people may think about it as something traded on as numbers on a screen, but somewhere, somehow there is a project that's being done that is what catching rainwater and, and har- harvesting under the ground and creating an aquifer and, and planting trees or, you know, doing different things to enhance ecosystems is my level of some of my level of understanding. But talk me through and give me some of that granular context about what is a nature-based solution and how do we actually remove carbon or, or kind of restore ecosystems to create a carbon market or and to create, you know, ideally a prosperous future for everyone yeah no that's a good point and actually it's also funny funny thing because there's been out lately technology that would draw down carbon for instance elon musk had a challenge for uh, carbon dioxide removal and we think that one of the the best technologies is photosynthesis and if you think about what's happening there uh, the equation is that you have uh, energy from sun and then water and carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and and they together they they built biomass, and then release oxygen. So this is, I think, a very novel technology for uh, carbon removal. It doesn't have to be the only one. You can have purely uh, technological innovations as well. What we, and then going back to like this, the role of science and tech there. So for instance, what we work with, we, we use satellite data, uh, process-based models, and different algorithms to, to measure and quantify that biomass and that carbon removal. So this is also something uh, you can call, call it climate tech or nature tech, but basically the idea that these indigenous knowledge and nature is not an opposite to technological development. That uh, we actually believe technology and science will will drive uh, this change. And now, for instance, on on the carbon, so on carbon removal, uh, it depends a lot on the landscape. The more you have biomass, so the more you have basically life, and it is actually clear correlation. The more complex biodiversity you have in the ecosystem, the more it, it binds or sequesters carbon. So it depends a lot of, are we talking about tundra? Are we talking about coral reefs? Are we talking about mangroves? But I'm just giving an example on agriculture. On agriculture, we have this uh, movement, it's called uh, regenerative agriculture, which basically started by uh, a bunch of farmers who, because the commodity prices have been, food prices have been going down and the fertilizers, fertilizer prices have been going up. There's been this kind of dead squeeze for a lot of farmers. And um, you had a number of farmers who went bankrupt and they had to sell all their machinery and they couldn't buy fertilizers anymore. But they would still have this large land. And because they've been working with the land all their life, they do know you can build soil. You just take building soil is, is basically composting in a massive scale. You just take biomass and leave it on the ground. And if you have a healthy ecosystem, that decomposes to, to soil, which is... Uh, in humus or in the soil, it's about 50, 58% carbon. So, and then they basically found out that this was, for many farmers, it was a way more profitable way of producing food because they now they would tap into the more lucrative market. They could sell their product at a premium. At the same time, they needed way less machinery, way less working hours, fuel, uh, fertilizers, and pesticides. So for a long time, a lot of the agricultural, agronomic, scientific research was more, it was funded by the big ag companies. And a good example is then, well, well the, the resin ag farmers were working with that. Then it was basically USD, USDA and, and, and other researchers, they started to 
They just wanted to verify that what the farmers claim was true. And yeah, there's a lot of research on that now available that we can, this kind of traditional knowledge of farmers, it actually works and it's true and it does. They do build soil, the biodiversity improves, the water infiltration capacity of the soil improves, profit margin improves, you draw down carbon. So I do think I agree 100% like this kind of traditional knowledge that's out there, whether it's farmers or pastoralists or indigenous groups, the scientific community should work way closer with them and find out that which practices actually work and then quantify it. Yeah, and that's not always needing to create this crazy next technological solution. And, and the, the green revolution is a great example in that while, yes, there were some some major leaps and gains with like, genetically engineered seeds and, and this advanced fertilizer and the pesticide to kill it and the whole story of, of Monsanto and stuff like that, of course, there's been some big advancements to feed the masses, but at the same time, if you can just have a, a functioning ecosystem that's that's working in harmony, there's a lot of these, what's the phrase, ecosystem services that are happening naturally where nature is is doing a lot of the work for you. And you actually, like you said, you don't need to have the cost of the man hours as much. You don't need as much equipment. You don't need as much fertilizer. And I think that's one of the core concepts I keep coming back to is oftentimes if you you, you, sometimes humans maybe have to do a little, little bit to restore the capacity of nature, but oftentimes if you kind of just, if humans sort of just get out of the way and let nature do its thing, oftentimes I find that there is usually a, a healthy rebalance to hopefully enable a, a functioning ecosystem to regain and, and to settle within whatever you mentioned, whether it's tundra, whether that's coral reef or, or mangroves. Uh, absolutely. And that's actually the first thing when you, for, so for instance, I work here a lot here in Sahel. So that's kind of the, the belt below Sahara, the first belt where you have a bit of more vegetation. And we have this big project here. It's called uh, the Great Green Wall Project. And it started, everybody thought about planting trees. But if you go down from full uh, desert and then you have a bit of more precipitation, you're not going to have the first biome. It's not going to be a full forest, obviously. It's different kind of savanna and strapland. And so on. And, but we had this very simplistic idea that we have to go and plant trees. And then, and you had this big project when they counted that how many, they would say, oh, we planted 5 million trees, but how many of those survived? There were a lot of projects where maybe 95% of the trees died. So now the approach is more actually, as you well pointed out, the nature is perfect. Nature can take care of itself. The problem is we keep destroying it. How do we incentivize human behavior so that we don't destroy it, or at least not at that phase? A lot of the work also with nature-based solutions for instance, here in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's actually identifying those key driving causes of land degradation and environmental degradation, and, and then trying to address that. And, and it's important because, I mean, a lot of those communities, those rural communities, they have nothing else. So the only thing what they have to do is, the only thing where they can get a bit of money is like, going down maybe and cutting down some trees. So I agree a lot of the nature-based work, the fact that you work with nature-based solutions is actually a lot working with the, with the communities and helping them to survive without having to go and destroy the forests and the rains and the savannas around them. So yeah, I agree hundred percent. That's a, that's a very good point. And to that point of how do we incentivize human behavior to not destroy nature? How do we create the opportunity to bring more money and to fund some of these nature-based solutions, like what are maybe one or two just off the, off the cuff thoughts that you have in regards to how do we do that? How do we incentivize good activities and how do we bring more money into this space? Yeah. And that's actually, that brings back us to the loop that 
with the value and the price of the nature, because a lot of these communities, they know, they know that they're destroying the environment and they know it's not sustainable, but they just don't have any other choice. And sometimes it's a bit of like uh, the, the tragedy of the common good is like, if I don't go and fish there and if I don't go and overgraze that, then somebody else is going to do it. And then, you know, my family is going to starve. So I, I do know this is not sustainable, but I just, I'm just going to survive another week. So how do we get out from this cycle? Uh, and where does the money to, to, to support these activities come from? Now we go back to the carbon pricing and actually putting a price on nature. This is a big opportunity. That's why we think it's a big opportunity for uh, rural communities, especially here in the, in the developing world, because here in general populations are poorer, especially in the, in the, in the rural areas. So those extra, fun, those extra revenues from the carbon funds can play a big role. Now, what is the activities? We don't advocate for like simplistic one-size-fits-for-all solutions. We think that at the core of the nature-based solutions, there is something what is called integrated landscape management. And that really, let's say when you have a, an area, a project area, you really I need a lot of research. There. You need to understand the socioeconomic factors, ecological factors, how they play, how they impact each other. But I can just, for instance, one thing what we're working with is, and there's a few projects as well. I mean, there's a kind of a project we've been looking in Kenya, then adapting it into the Sahel is uh, one example of a tragedy of common good. Uh, in, in Africa, most of the rangelands are public and you have pastoralist groups are grazing them. And they used to grow this livestock for their own purposes before, but when they got integrated into the global market, they started increasing their, their herd size. And at the same time, you have encroachment of the rangeland and maybe degrading the, the traditional maybe associated structures. So that has led a massive scale of, of desertification and that land degradation in dry areas. So there, one option, for instance, one activity is what you do, you together with these groups, you, you create a, a crazing plan. So you basically build a plan, how do you use this rain resource sustainably? And then for those groups who follow the plan, you pay an incentive for the carbon fund. And they don't, they, what they get, if, if that works, it's not only that they get this extra revenue from the carbon fund, also as the rangeland, as the savannah ecosystem functions services improve, they'll also get more forage, which actually means that they could even graze more, more animals there. But it's just putting this structure to manage this natural resource sustainably and having money to do it. And for us, we see that this mechanism wasn't there. Before, donors would maybe pay your, uh, they would maybe fund a project of two or three years. But to restore degraded areas, it takes 20 or 30 years. So yeah, maybe you still have the donor community. They can maybe pay uh, help to build it. But the 20, 30 year financing will come from the, from the carbon market. Yeah, that is tough. When sometimes if you are living out in a rural area and all you have is, is the natural resource in the front of you and you have to feed your family, you sometimes don't have any other choice. But I think that's, that is the dilemma we face of how can we put some of these structures in place and enable these, the sustainability of a project for the medium and long-term, allow us to look past today and tomorrow in one year from now and three years from now. But that's tough because many people, they need money and they need economic activity to survive. So that is a challenge. And, and I know it's something that is not necessarily going to be solved on this podcast here in this chat. And whether it's the SDG Talk community listening or my DePaul students, I challenge you to, to think about this dyna dynam dynamic. And you and I, as we close up here, I want to give you one last sort of uh, 
what is the final message or question or quote or anything that you have that you want to want to leave with us here today? Yeah, to me, I think to me, the whole journey, we started working with kind of climate tech or with our startup, maybe I started already two years ago. It's been really hard work. I never done anything so rewarding. To me, it's, I think, you know, we've been talking about the, the change required on the markets, regulatory standards, how you need change there on business. But I think that the real change, it comes in values and how we understand what's good life. And I have to say, I've never had so much fun in my life than working in this. I never met some amazing people all around the world, scientists, investors, farmers. And I guess my message is that when, as we start working, you know, to a more sustainable world, we're not losing anything. We're gaining so much. Sometimes you may have to go through, you know, a bit of discomfort, especially if you're a startup entrepreneur, but uh, it is so rewarding and you're going to be way happier um, than you were when you started. And you're going to connect with a lot of like-minded people all around the world. So I think that alone is, it's a very rewarding way to go. And I, I think people are going to increasingly find it. And then that's going to be the kind of driving force of, the, of this positive change. Yona, well said. And, and final thing, if people want to learn more about you or get in touch, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, anybody, feel free to get in touch with me. In your website, again, and we'll put it in the show notes, but soilwatch.eu, is that correct? Yeah, that's our website. All right, soilwatch.eu. Awesome, Yona. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you again for all the amazing work you do. Excited to continue to stay in touch and look forward to see what's next for Soilwatch. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Take care. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community. Goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.